Who enjoyed Van's message last week? Yeah, wasn't it just really inspiring to hear the story of the church and where we've been, which informs, of course, where we're going. And, and so that was sort of part one of a vision series for y'all, and today is going to be part two. And what I'm going to be talking about is where we're wanting to go as a church body. Now, I will say that if you were here nine months ago when we did the vision series then, that's all still where we're going. So we haven't forgotten about those seven things that we shared with you then when we combined down into one service and just pressed into what we felt like God was saying to us for the future. And if you haven't heard those, by the way, or if you want to get refreshed on them, they're on our podcast. You just have to scroll back a little bit. It was like February, March-ish is when we did that of 2023. So that's still where we're going. And if you remember that vision series, one of the messages that we gave was focused on community. And that's actually the kind of part of the future that I want to share with you about this morning. Not only because it's just incredibly significant and important, but I actually think that Getting community right as a church is going to be the thing that allows us to step into all of the other things that we want to step into as a church. So speaking of community, about 10 years ago, I got into ministry. Um, I guess it was 12 years ago, but same, same. And around that time, I was deeply involved in what you would call community ministry, you know, what I was primarily doing when I jumped into ministry then was not this right here, was not speaking on a Sunday morning. It was sitting in a circle in a living room and opening up the scripture, sitting in a circle in a living room and, and worshiping with someone playing an acoustic guitar badly and singing even worse. But <laughs> the presence was so powerful uh, and, and sitting there and praying for that was kind of how I got started in in, in ministry, it was, it was more of a community, more of a smaller group, more of what you might call a fellowship setting. And around that time, our culture was going through some wild changes. Uh, I could name them all, but one of the most significant ones was, I would say, around that 2012, 2013 time period is when the tide of public opinion was shifting about the LGBTQ community, at least in our country. And uh, whereas if, if you were a part of that community when I was in high school or even college, you kind of kept it to yourself because if you shared it, you'd get bullied or you'd get, um, you know, harassed. Whereas around that time, and of course it probably was different in different parts of the country, but maybe I'll speak for here. Around that time is when the average person's opinion about the LGBTQ community started to shift. And the reason I bring that up is that in those early to mid years of doing community ministry, specifically with young adults, we had about a dozen LGBTQ people in our midst. They were practicing community with us, and it was great. Uh, we, they, and these people, you know, whether they had same-sex attraction or they had some sort of gender dysphoria or something, they were choosing to, instead of living according to those feelings, to live 
according to the sexual and gender ethic that Jesus revealed. And it was awesome. Why do I bring this all up? Well, sadly, today, all of those people except for one are no longer doing that. And of all of the ones that are not doing it, I'm pretty sure all of them except for one are actively in a non-heterosexual relationship or they are, they've transitioned uh, their gender. And I've gotten to speak to some of them about sort of what happened, like what kind of led you from this place of being, I'm willing to put this aside and to commit my life to Jesus in his way to, I can't do that anymore, or I'm not willing to do that anymore. And of course, there are many factors that go into this. And also, I just want to say as a caveat that every single person is responsible for their own decision. So uh, they have no one to blame but themselves for choosing the life that, that they have. But I started to hear a common theme as I would talk to people. And, it, and, and you know, if I could just kind of step out of that subset of people for a second, I also heard this theme talking to people who had experienced divorce and had left Christianity. And I also heard this theme talking to people who, have, who are single, have wanted to be married, but it has never worked out for them. I heard a similar thing from them. So all of these different kind of groups of people heard the same story. And the story went something like this. In my early 20s and mid-20s, I had this amazing, supportive Christian community around me. I had a place where I truly felt like I belonged, where I could be vulnerable with people on a regular basis and they'd be vulnerable with me, where I had many confidants that I could share my struggles and my victories with, where I truly felt safe, where I truly felt like I had intimacy and relationship and connection. And then everyone started getting married, but me. And everybody started having kids, but me. And slowly but surely, that support system that I had as I followed Jesus was pulled out from under me, and I found myself all alone. And I held on as tightly as I could in that loner kind of place for as long as I could until I couldn't bear it anymore. And um, I've, this, this isn't just one person I've heard this story from. Multiple people have heard the same story, and again, not just people in the LGBTQ community, but people who never got married, people who went through a divorce, um, people who, really, people who are not currently part of what we would call like a nuclear family unit. And part of me, as I think about that, is like, well, you know, that times change. Like, when you're in high school, this is what your life stage looks like, and when you go into kind of college, and around that time, this is what your life stage looks like, you know, college age, and when you, you know, it's just kind of the natural progression of life, and I get that, but something about it just never has sat right with me. Like, is it really true that you can have that close-knit um, community of Christian support with intimacy and vulnerability and connection only in your early 20s? unless you get married. Is that actually the way that it's supposed to be? So that's the question I sort of want to wrestle with with all of you this morning. 
And that leads to the title of my message, which the title of my message is The Community Jesus Created. So I want to dive into what actually was the kind of community that Jesus created, and are we still living out his vision for community today in 2024, Cincinnati, Ohio, in the United States. So I'm guessing that it's probably universally understood in this room that what's happening right now is not what the biblical authors had in mind when they thought about community. You know, like this is not community. Now, it, it has some elements of what we read about the early church, what they prioritized. So the early church, there's this great kind of summation verse in Acts chapter 2 that talks about what the early church community was all about. And you read that they were all about prayer, breaking of bread, fellowship, and the apostles' teaching. And so there's teaching happening right now. I'm not calling myself an apostle, but like a leader, leader's kind of teaching, you know? So, so teaching is happening from a leader, so that's kind of a, a, a continuity. And then uh, prayer, we don't, you know, we don't do a ton of corporate prayer on Sunday mornings at least, but uh, worship and prayer are sort of in the same category for the biblical authors, and a lot of times our worship songs are actually prayers. So you can, I think you can, it's fair enough to say that we do prayer together on Sundays, but we definitely don't do what, what the biblical authors meant by fellowship, and we're definitely not doing what they meant by breaking of bread. Those are activities that really can only happen in a smaller group where you can sit across a table from someone face-to-face, have a conversation, open up about your life, confess sins, do those sort of things. So this is not, this is part of what the biblical authors thought community was, but it's not the entirety of it. So there are many reasons for, oh, and let me say this. Uh, this is what most people think church is, though. Most people in America think this is church. They think this is the body of Christ. And that's a problem because we have 50% if at best, maybe more like 35% of what the original church had when they thought of the church, when they thought of the body of Christ gathering. So we need to unpack kind of how we got here that the average Christian thinks that coming to this on Sunday morning only is what is needed for, what's kind of required of them, what's necessary for a thriving spiritual life. And I'm not just making that up, like I'm going to show you a statistic in a second that that actually is the case, at least in our country. So there are many reasons for why the average American Christian thinks that this is the pinnacle of what it means to be a part of a church. And we don't have time to go into all of them, of course, but the one I want to focus on is just one that uh, it's just, I'm just going to put an exclamation point on what Jordan Pelfrey was talking about when he gave his message on community nine months ago, and that is individualism. Individualism is uh, responsible in a lot of ways for the version of church that we all think of today. So just to remind you, 
Jordan's message was titled, Resist Extreme Individualism, Embrace Community. And he defined individualism this way, the habit or principle of being independent or self-reliant. Independence and self-reliance, that's, that's bread and butter of our culture, right? I mean, that's, that's what you put, you get a badge of honor for being independent and self-reliant. If you're not independent or self-reliant, or at least not according to society's standards, you're looked down upon. And you see this on all of the ideologies. I don't care if you're on the far political right or the far political left. You know, the left's version of this is live your truth, you do you. The right's version of this is my freedoms, my life, don't you dare take my da 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 Don't you dare do this or that to, to me. Don't, don't tread on me. That would be kind of the right's version of it. So this individualism, this self-reliance or extreme independence, you can find it all across the board. And a, something that I think will really bring this out for us, in case uh, you, want, you, know, you still need to see it more clearly, is the repulsion that we feel at the idea of an arranged marriage. Who thinks an arranged marriage is a really noble, cool idea? <laughs> a few people. <laughs> you win. No. Okay. But you understand that we're in the minority when it comes to how marriages are done culturally throughout the world. Like, more people than not still practice arranged marriages. And we're like, oh, well, that's because they're all unsophisticated. They haven't reached the level of sophistication as we have here in American society. And then we're like, oh, really? Well, how about we look at the actual successes of those marriages? And then we get quiet real quick because we're like, huh. They arranged marriages... Study after study shows they really do better than our version of marriage, right? And now I'm not, I don't necessarily want us to like shift to arranged marriages, but what I'm trying to point out is that I think that a lot of people almost see that as a moral issue. Like it's wrong. It's like not right for a marriage to be arranged. The way marriage should be is that it should be freely chosen by each individual. And there's no biblical basis for that. That's just, that just flows out of the, what has been normalized in our culture. That flows out of individualism. So individualism, it's really, it's just, it's in the air. There are so many ways that we're being pulled and pushed by it and impacted by it that we're not even aware of. Now, I am primarily going to critique individualism this morning, but I will say that the Bible actually uh, teaches a version of individualism that is really important. And that, that version of individualism is that not just people groups, but each individual is made in the image and the likeness of God. And that truth in and of itself has been the bedrock assumption that has led to every human right that the uh, world has advocated for and established today. So individualism in one sense, is actually a really, really important, good thing, and, all, and the idea for it actually stems back to the scriptures. But in classic human fashion, we just took that good thing and took it way too far. Like we swung the pendulum way as far up as it can go on the other side. 
And that's led us to where we are today and what, what, I, you know, what I called extreme individualism or what others call radical individualism. In our version of individualism, it leads us to a place where we don't care about the input of others in major decisions, where we're isolated and where it's usually we do life kind of on our own or even or just in our you know, nuclear family unit and not with anybody else. It pushes us towards selfishness and self-absorption. I mean, just, just yesterday, literally, I was, I was on Facebook and I stumbled upon this post from this pastor who's deconstructed and still has a faith in Jesus, but very different from what it used to be. And, and the Facebook post that he shared said, it was just like a meme, kind of like a meme, it's just a quote, and said, the only opinion about your life that counts is yours. And I was just like, the only opinion about your life that counts is yours. Thank God I did not follow that advice. My life would be an absolute nightmare. Well, it makes sense why so many people are shipwrecking their lives. It's like, thank God I got the opinions of others for my life sometimes. <laughs> but that post, of course, been shared a million times, millions of likes, millions of loves, people commenting on it. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, preach it. It's almost like our gospel, you know, our culture's gospel. And uh, people really resonate with it on a deep level because of that. Now, I'm not just going to stand here and critique it. Let's look at the fruit of extreme individualism. These are some statistics Jordan quoted. So rates of loneliness have doubled in our country since the 1980s. Twice as many lonely people. That's a lot of lonely people. 35% of Americans describe themselves as chronically lonely. That's like more than a third. The average American has between zero and one confidants. That means many have zero. And then finally, less than half of Protestant Christians are in small groups, and that percentage is shrinking. You can throw out that slide. Uh, so less than half of Christians would be involved in anything that you could put the term like fellowship or community on. Um, and that kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about Sunday mornings. And biblical scholars are talking about this too. So in his deep dive study on the community of the early church, this author named Joseph Hellerman wrote this summary of our individualistic culture. They call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. I want to zero in on that phrase, we have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group. That might be a tough pill to swallow for some of us in here right now. I mean, for me even, still, and I'm giving the message, that this is still a tough pill to swallow that, like, I mean, the implication of what he's saying there is that 
it's not right for me to think that my dreams and goals and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of my church or my family. Like, that's not okay. And, you know, in one sense, we can be like, amen, yeah. But then when you really think about it, like, I should be willing to lay down my dream for the health of my family. I should be willing to lay down my sense of personal fulfillment for the health of my church. Family we can be okay with. When you say church, it's like, shoot, this is a cult. Get me out of here. <laughs> Next thing, they're coming for my money. <clears throat> It's a tough pill to swallow thinking about putting the well-being of a group over my own dreams and goals. But you know what? Thank God heroic men and women of the Christian faith have done this over the last 2,000 years. Most notably, the martyrs under the Roman imperial persecution in the first three centuries. When told, renounce your faith or die, renounce your faith or be tortured, they chose to be tortured and to die instead of renounce their faith in Jesus. Now, as a quick aside, when I used to read stories about that, it might be the pragmatist in me, but I kind of thought, why, why didn't they just renounce Christ? Like, it, obviously, they wouldn't be doing it truthfully. They would be lying when they renounced Jesus. And in that way, like, they could be forgiven for that sin of lying. Like, of course, we know all sin is forgiven on the cross, past, present, and future. So they're going to be forgiven for that sin anyways. But now they get to stay alive and continue whatever ministry they're doing or you know, be there for their family, be there for their kids. What if they have young kids? Like, it was confusing to me the, the, the value of just refusing to renounce Christ. But I was, first off, I was looking at that from a completely American individualistic perspective. My life my family, you know, my forgiveness of sins. Like, it was all about me. But secondly, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that they specialized in squashing political and religious movements that threatened their control over society. They had perfected it to a science. And the Christian movement was not the first. There were hundreds before it. And what they would do is they would take the leaders, they'd brutally kill a few of them to scare everyone, they'd take the rest of the leaders, and they'd say, renounce what you're saying, and they didn't want to die and be tortured, so they would renounce it, and their renouncing of whatever uh, they were claiming to believe before would uh, destroy all the loyalty and all of the inspiration that their followers had, and the movement would dissipate. This happened over and over and over and over and over again. Rome had never not succeeded in squashing a religious or political movement until Christianity. And you know why they couldn't squash Christianity? Because the Christians would rather die than renounce their faith in Christ. They would be willing to be tortured and killed. And not only were they willing to do that, which completely undercut the Roman strategy, but the moments where these Christians in utter boldness and courage would maintain faith in Jesus publicly, those were some of the most powerful evangelistic moments for Christianity. The, old, the church father Tertullian put it this way, the blood of the martyrs is seed. And some have added seed of revival. The blood of the martyrs was seed for revival for the Christian church. 
But the martyrs, they were the epitome of not putting their own personal fulfillment, dreams, and goals over the well-being of the movement, over the well-being of the church. Inspiring example. And I actually wasn't going to read this verse, uh, but Derry's saying so much about it that I feel like I have to now. Uh, I think kind of their rallying cry, the martyrs' rallying cry would have been Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And so we're not being threatened with torture and murder today, but we can still follow that example of radically not loving our lives more than the lives of others. Now, beyond just the inspiring example of the martyrs, Scripture thoroughly, oppresses, uh, thoroughly opposes our modern individualism. Throw up those lists of Scriptures. I'm not going to go through them all, um, but, you know, just take a picture of that if you don't believe me on this and read them later. <clears throat> My favorite, though, would be Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you wanna be great, in the kingdom, you put your life last. You put your dreams and your goals and your personal fulfillment as last priority. You want to be great in the world? Yeah. Prioritize your own dreams, goals. You'll succeed according to American culture standards, but you'll, you'll utterly fail according to the standards of the kingdom of God. We cannot retain individualism and be kingdom people. I'll end this section with this, another quote from Hellerman's book. And let's really take this to heart. Like we have a, like let's, let's, let's be really honest that we have a problem. I think that's step one here. We must embrace the fact that our value system has been shaped by a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the outlook of the early Christians and to the teachings of Scripture. As church-going Americans, we have been socialized to believe that our individual fulfillment and our personal relationship with God are more important than any connection we might have with our fellow human beings, whether in the home or in the church. We have, in a most subtle and insidious way, been conformed to this world. So on that note, let's take a quick discussion break. I got three questions up here. Turn to the person you came with or someone nearby. If you see someone without someone, go over to them. Uh, Choose one of these to answer. I'll give you about two or three minutes on your mark. Get set. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. So hopefully I've convinced you that we don't want to be extreme individualists, and more importantly, that God doesn't want us to be extreme individualists. But where do we go from here? What's the, if you, you know, if you will, antidote for extreme individualism? And of course, it's community. Biblical community is the antidote that we need. 
And I'm really just going to share two points about community, and then we'll be done. First one is this. The community Jesus created was a radically committed spiritual family. That's what he established. When uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way, when he's talking about this like radical command Jesus gave in Matthew 8, N.T. Wright said, the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisaged loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. Church truly is a family. It's supposed to be a family. And we know this from the use that Jesus implemented and then the other biblical authors maintained, which was brother and sister. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we ought to think about each other. Now, we need to do a little bit of work on this term, brothers and sisters, a little bit of historical context work, because we think about brothers and sisters way differently than they did 2,000 years ago. I mean, I think about myself, and my closest relationship would be my wife, Jamie. Next layer out would probably be my best friends, Wilson being the first of a few. And then my next layer out, it might be my brothers. I'm close with my brothers, but it also might be my parents. And I, you know, there's I, might, I might say I'm close with my parents than my brothers. And then maybe a fourth layer out, you have my brothers. And so maybe, maybe some of you, that's true for you as well. Maybe some of you are closer with your siblings than that. But I feel like a lot of people, at least, would say that their brothers and sisters, their like siblings are not their very closest relationships, which makes sense, the version of church we have in America in 2024. We don't view each other as our closest relationships. We view each other as a second, third, or fourth degree out. A lot of us, anyways. I've viewed the church that way. Recently, I've viewed the church that way. But when you dive into the ancient world, what you find is that brother and sister relationships were the closest relationships, even more than relationship between husband and wife, oftentimes. Just in that culture, that's how it was. Uh, again, Hellerman, if you don't believe me, here's an expert. The early church functioned like an ancient Mediterranean family, not a modern American family. For persons in Mediterranean antiquity, Marriage took a backseat priority-wise to another more important family relationship, the bond between blood brothers and sisters. We cannot simply import our American idea of what it means to be a brother or sister into our interpretation of the New Testament. Brother meant immeasurably more to the strong group authors of the Bible than the word means to you and me. It was their most important family relationship. So a term that might be better for us today would be like best friends in Christ. You know, it'd be weird to say like spouses in Christ because then we're getting kind of Mormon-esque, but <laughs> best friends in Christ, like that might be a term that helps us get a little closer. Like Jesus wants you to look at the person across the aisle from you and think of them as a best friend. I mean, think about that for a second. How would things change? Just look at somebody in the room. How would things change if you viewed that person as a best friend? Now, 
Some of you are begging for a caveat. I can feel it. <laughs> I thought about not giving it. Uh, but some of you are thinking now, well, wait a minute. Like, does that mean that I need to, like, prioritize my spouse and maybe my kids, like, less than just that Joe Schmoke follower of Jesus across the aisle from me? Like, how do I actually apply this? Like, what are, what are you saying? And, and no, that is not what I'm saying. That would be um, taking one part of Scripture and making it the ultimate when there are plenty of really uh, pro-natural family Scriptures in the New Testament. I mean, I'm thinking about Jesus talking about divorce, talking about kids honoring their parents, talking about... Um, few other places, well, husband and wife being one flesh. So Jesus actually, in a lot of ways, challenged the low view of marriage that the culture of the day had. So that's kind of one truth that we cannot lose. So no, I'm not saying abandon your spouse and children for ministry. I'm not saying that. But there's another side to this, which, it, which goes something like this. My nuclear family unit for those that are in that, they get 90 to 95% of my best time and energy and affection. And if I have anything left over, then I can give that to my brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of us think this way. And that is equally as contradictory to the words of Jesus and the truth of Scripture as the other example that I gave. So we need to find a place more in the middle where, no, we're not neglecting our household, but we're also not letting individualism lead us to prioritize our household in such a way that we neglect our spiritual family. And Jesus, just to go through a few of them, he really, he had both pro-natural family scriptures and what we would call anti natural family scriptures. I'm just going to read a few, uh, not going to go super into them, but like Mark 3, 32 through 35. Listen to this. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So making a pretty clear delineation there that my true family is not my natural family. My true family is my brothers and sisters in faith. Now, again, don't take that one thing and make it ultimate. There are plenty of pro-family scriptures too, but these should at least challenge us to think differently than we have been. Another one would be Mark 10. Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, keynote here, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What are the, who are these brothers and sisters and mothers and children that we receive after leaving our natural ones? 
They're the spiritual ones. They're your family. They're your brothers and sisters, mothers and children in Christ. Probably the most intense anti-natural family scripture that Jesus, or thing that Jesus said would have been in Luke 14, 26. He said, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. And we try to make this more palatable. We change hate to loveless. Like, oh, he didn't mean hate. He meant love less. Like, if you love, if you love me less than your spouse, then okay. And then, okay, whew, we're all good. We can maintain our American individualism. It's okay. That's not what he's saying. Now, I, don't think, I also don't think he's saying, like, intensely dislike. And uh, uh, the way that one scholar put it was the word hate here probably is best translated leave behind. Whoever, and, and it's pro- the idea is probably whoever's not willing to leave behind, spouse, brother, sister, mother, father, children, is not worthy to be my disciple. We gotta be willing to leave behind everybody. Behind everybody. And I know this is a moot point for most of us because our natural family are also followers of Jesus. And so that's great. That's that when you, when you as a husband are loving your wife, you're actually not just loving your wife, you're loving a sister in Christ too. You're priori- you are prioritizing your family of faith in that act of love. So for most of us, this really is a non-issue. But there are some in this room that have had to live this out, that have had to leave behind natural family, that have had to prioritize the family of, their family of faith over father, mother, brother, sister, over their spouse, out of loyalty to Jesus. There are people in here who have had to do that. And there are people in here who, uh, I don't know if there are any in here, but there are people who have decided to forego even having a family, a nuclear family unit, out of faithfulness to Jesus. Again, thinking about LGBTQ people. You know, there are people I know who they're, they believe that God could change their desires, but until that day comes, they're choosing celibacy out of faithfulness to Jesus. I know gay men and women who think this way. And there are, um, there are all kinds of people who have truly had to make that difficult, sacrificial choice to leave behind or even forego their natural family out of faithfulness to Jesus and his family. And so for the rest of us, our job is to be that spiritual family that they need. Our job is to be the body of Christ, to be best friends in Christ to them. It shouldn't be that the only place the body of Christ can truly be an interconnected group of people that extends beyond nuclear family lines is when you're young adults, when you're, before you're married. Like that, that is not how it's supposed to be, and that's not how it was in the early church. So we have some rewiring to do as a church. And so this leads to what's our vision for community at Vineyard Northwest? And hopefully I've been painting it a little clearly. One word I heard from the Lord that 
I think is worth sharing with all of you. Last summer when I was praying about this is, I feel like God said this to me about our church. You've been doing events to create community. I want you to do community that creates the need for events. We're really good at events here. (laughs) We got great classes. We got great conferences. Our services are pretty good, I think. We're really good at events, and I don't want to stop being good at events. I love our events. But if we're only doing events and we're not doing community, we've got it backwards. Like events should flow out of a community. Otherwise, we do have just this version of church that's really easy for a average American individualist to jump right into. I can schedule it out. They give me plenty of notice. They announce it 500 times to me so it stays on my radar. They send out emails. Okay, I got it on my calendar. won't plan stuff around it. Ah, everything's okay. That doesn't work when you're doing life with people. That doesn't work when you get a call at two in the morning from someone who needs you, and you just been you've you've already been woken up by kids, and you or you and your spouse were fighting that night, or some reason or another makes you not want to answer that call. But that's true. That's where that's the bread and butter of community right there, doing life together. So what do we do? And now I want to call out that maybe some of you in here are feeling a sense of anxiety right now, like. Okay, but how can I possibly add anything else to my life? I just feel like I'm totally maxed out. There's no way that I can live this out. And I want to say that first off, our brains, they tend to go to extremes when they're feeling anxiety. And so whatever extreme thing you're thinking in your mind right now, that's probably not your next step. Okay, but you do have a next step if you want to You kind of want to unplug from the American individualistic matrix, get in the real Christian kingdom world, and not just succumb to that lying mindset anymore that the enemy has tried to get into all of our minds. Uh, There is a next step for you. And Jesus, he is so good and faithful, he will lead you step by step into that. So my final point In the community Jesus created, intimate connection was practiced before it was experienced. And I want to invite all of you to focus not on experiencing community, but on practicing community. And here's the difference. When you practice something, you are working toward typically a future reward, not an immediate reward. We love immediate rewards. But think about, like, working out. You go into the gym one day. You haven't, you know, you haven't worked out in years, okay? You go in the gym one day, you go for one run, and then you look in the mirror, and you're like, this was a waste of time. Nothing changed. All right, screw it. Going back to my normal life. That's how a lot of us are with community. But here's how it looks. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to a community group, and you're all excited because you heard a message like this, and you got this idealistic vi- picture of what the small group is going to look like. It's going to be just this amazing place of connection and vulnerability. And you show up and it's awkward right off the bat. No one's really talking. The leader is a little insecure and unprepared. That couple that you really get annoyed by happens to be there. (laughs) And one person is just dominating the conversation. You barely even get in two words. And then there's this low-key tense moment between these other two people, and it gets really awkward then. 
And you leave that night and you're like, I am never going back to that thing. <laughs> okay. Forget community. I don't need community. I'll stick with events. <laughs> you practice it and then you experience it. It's not going to come oftentimes. It will in some cases, but a lot of times it's not going to come right away. And if I could challenge you to think about those awkward moments differently, what if you thought about those awkward moments and those tense moments as individualism being detoxed out of your body? Okay? It's like, ooh, I'm going to embrace this awkwardness because what's happening here is human. This is, this is, these are human beings. And no version of community is going to fit all of these idealistic standards that I have for them. So I'm going to embrace this. I'm not going to let it scare me. I'm not going to let it push me away. And in so, I'm going to be deconstructing individualism out of my thinking. That's my challenge to all of you. So I uh, had, a few, had a few slides to show you uh, interesting survey information. I sent out a survey to about 60 of you, but I'm afraid we're out of time for that. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me? Oh, one more thing, actually. This is, this is important. Throw my email up on the screen uh, for us or whoever's back there. You might be thinking, okay, I'm down. Where do I start? What, what group can I join? And what I'll say is that coming, we, at our church, we've kind of ebbed and flowed in terms of our community ministry and had some great high points. Kind of through COVID, we kind of got to a low point, didn't really have many groups at all. In the last year, we started three new groups, and we've got planned to start two or three more this year, but we don't quite have like an efficient, effective system yet for getting just anybody who wants to join a part of one. So here is the real crude but effective way of getting, making this happen. If you are interested in joining a community group and you don't know of one to join, email me at that email address. Take a picture of it real quick if you need my email, and I will try to find a place for you to get plugged in. Okay, so we got some words of knowledge for this morning. Um, first, someone with an injured hand. Could be a new injury, but it feels like it's an old injury. Uh, prayer teams, you can come forward. Or an old breaks, didn't heal correctly and caused a person a lot of trouble. Also, believe that God wants to heal hearts and people with unforgiveness toward others and toward themselves. There's breakthrough for that this morning. Um, a woman who is about to take a test, like for nursing or to be a doctor, God is giving peace in a new studying technique. And shoulder and neck pain, there's grace for that to be healed this morning. And finally, uh, physical and chemical problems in the brain, like ADD. Uh, God is restoring continuity of thought this morning, and if you want prayer for that. Or for anything else, doesn't just have to be those things, those are specific things that we are sensing. These people that are going to be up here, they love to pray, so come give them something to pray about. So let's pray now. Jesus, we honor you. We love you. Thank you for creating a spiritual family. Thank you that you put the lonely into families. Thank you that you created a life, a, a way to be human that is truly so much better than the way of the world and the way of our culture. And so as we transition out of the way of our world into the, your way and all the discomfort that comes with that, will you be with us? Will you reveal your peace and your love to us? In Jesus' name, amen.